0: How did the Jewish people become a nation? Did Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph have any say in being the Founding Fathers or were they predestined to do all they did? And What about us? What is God in control of and what are we responsible for? Hi I'm Yvonne Pren, and welcome to Bible805 where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll answer these questions and more in our lesson today entitled, from a person to a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, plus a discussion of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. So much more is going on in these chapters in Genesis than is first apparent. These chapters are not just a retelling of a family history or Bible stories you may have heard growing up about Joseph and his coat of many colors, Jacob and the angels, the family of Jacob moving to Egypt and later becoming enslaved there, the setting for the story of the Exodus in the Bible, or for the movie The Ten Commandments, which more people are sometimes familiar with than they are the Bible story about it. But we're going to step back and look at the story of how from one man comes a nation of God's chosen people to whom he would give his word and from whom the Messiah would come. The bigger picture we will also look at is the interplay of the sovereignty of God where he is in control of everything and human free will where we are free to make choices. We'll attempt to understand how our choices fit in with God, sovereignty, or ultimate control and what all of that fits in with the choices that we make. We'll explore if our choices are truly free or if every action is determined like a puppet and, most importantly, what is our accountability, our responsibility in this whole situation. Let's take a few minutes to review and overview where we are in reading through the Bible. In the first part of Genesis 1 through 11, we have four major events that involved all of humanity. Creation, the fall where people turned their back on God, the flood that covered the entire earth, and Noah and his family saved the animals, and then they got out of the ark and repopulated the earth, and then people decided once again to not do what God told them to. They wanted to all gather together, they wanted to be a great people and reach to the heavens, and so God confused their language at the Tower of Babel. Next, the second part of Genesis chapters 12 through 50, we have four major persons. The first part was four major events. Now we have four major persons that narrow the focus from an individual that God chooses to a nation. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, one more introductory comment. Please do remember that God's focus on Israel doesn't mean that He's forgetting the rest of humanity. The remainder of the Old Testament focuses on the nation of Israel, which we're going to see formed in this lesson. But I do want to emphasize that does not mean God does not care about or is not working in the rest of the world. We saw in our earlier lesson how Job, who is not a Jew, was commended for his faith in God. Later in Genesis, we have the story of Melchizedek, who is called a priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abraham after a battle that he fought to rescue Lot. Now, where does he come from? Who is he? We have absolutely no idea. Now the Bible tells us a little bit more about it in Hebrews more about him in Hebrews 7 and it says that he's a picture a picture of the coming Jesus as high priest but other than that we really don't know hardly anything about him and there will be additional stories throughout the Old Testament about those outside the Jewish faith who come to know the true God or who already know him, that we just meet, that biblical characters meet, and of course we have all sorts of questions about that, but the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It tells us what we need to know, but it does not by any means cover the entire story of God's plan with people and for our world. What we are told aside, their stories or not, in Romans 1 in the New Testament reiterates the idea that people innately know about God and are accountable to him. But to tell the Bible story clearly to the world, the story of salvation, God chose one people and how they humanly began is what we will focus on in this lesson. Now, to help us understand, I want to set this framework first, the connection between God's sovereignty and human free will in the lives of the characters that we're going to talk about in ours. We need to understand that all the stories in the Bible, and really all of human history, have two plot lines. They go in the same direction, but they take very different paths to get there. Now, I want you to picture this if you're listening to this on the podcast. Line number one is God's plan, which is ultimately salvation for all the earth, a renewed heaven and earth, and God once again walking with his people as it was in the Garden of Eden. And you see that as a completely straight line. God knows exactly where it started and how he wants it to end up. But then there's line number two, and that's the human lives that carried out and are part of his plan. And this is a crazy squiggles and backtracks. It goes here, it goes there, it goes everywhere. But it will eventually get to the destination. Now here's how they work together, and I want to credit Rick Warren for the initial idea for this analogy, for the overall big picture, but all of the details and ramifications of it, I must confess they're mine. I don't want to give him, uh, want to blame him for any of my conclusions. But overall, what he said, and I found this so helpful, is overall, God's overall plan is like an ocean liner. The direction is certain, the route is set, the captain is in charge. It's his ship. His word is law. But within the ship, the passengers have been given quite a bit of freedom. Individual actions do not affect the final outcome. That's determined by the captain. But individual decisions greatly affect the traveler's time on the ship. There is a crew with assigned tasks, and if they don't do them, things don't go well. Also, each passenger is responsible for his or her actions, his or her attitude, and based on that, what they get or don't get out of the trip. There's individual freedom, whether they're a helpful part of the crew, or a pleasant passenger, a dead weight, a bore, or someone who needs to be thrown in the brig. The passengers can't change the destination of the ship, but their actions greatly affect their experience of the journey and often also the experience of those around them. And they may get removed from the ship before it reaches its final good destination if they aren't acknowledging the captain as the one running the ship. Now it's not a perfect analogy, but I hope it's useful. God will work out his plan of salvation for the world. That's the destination of ocean liner earth. To work with him in doing that, he chose the people, Israel in the Old Testament, and the work is carried on by the church in the New Testament. You might say that in both cases, the Old Testament people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel and the church today, that we're his crew with these responsibilities. Now particularly focusing on the formation of Israel as his people in the Old Testament, they were entrusted with his word, spoken by the prophets, verified by signs and prophecies, recorded and passed down faithfully. It was to be believed and lived. They were to model his worship which we will see in our next section of the Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy. We can't just worship God any way we choose. He has specific rules that are to be followed and to be his witnesses. When they followed orders, which he clearly spelled out, they were blessed. When they didn't, they were disciplined. That is the plot line of the rest of the Old Testament. Now watch for how the both plot lines, gods and peoples, intertwine as we go through the Old Testament. There are a lot of crazy detours and corrections, storms and times of calm, but ultimately, no matter how much Israel messed up, they kept God's word and they kept worshiping him. And when the time was right, the prophesied Savior will come into the world. Now, Just to emphasize also where our story happens. Abraham is now settled in the land of Canaan. Never forget the importance of true history, which is what our Bible records taking place in identifiable geography. You can visit today all the places we will talk about. And there's, again, a reason our Bibles have maps, because it contains the story of our Bible is true history that took place in real places. And again, in contrast, many of the writings of other religions do not. Now, the characters who formed God's children people. The founding fathers of the Jewish people are often described as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph is also a key person that we'll talk about and who is talked about in the rest of Genesis as he was responsible to bring Jacob's family to Egypt to save the nation from starvation, and to provide them with an isolated area where they could grow into a nation. But it all started with Abraham, so let's do a quick review of his life before continuing. Let's do a quick review of Abraham's life. God calls him out of Ur, then Haran, and promises to give him the land and a heritage, and says in Genesis 17, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you. Now notice he doesn't just say it's to you and whatever woman you want to be with. He mentions Sarah specifically. Sarah is to be the mother of the promised heir. She is also important in God's plan, and we see his intervention and his care of women throughout the Bible, which was very different than the usual treatment of women in the societies of those days. He and Sarah, together though, lost faith, got impatient, and had a son with Hagar. And the result of Ishmael and the constant fighting between his descendants and those of Isaac continues to this day. Finally, Isaac is born to Sarah, Ishmael is sent away, Abraham is tested and passes the ultimate test to sacrifice his son. Sarah dies, Abraham remarries and has many other sons who he sends away with gifts. Genesis now shifts to a focus on Isaac. Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for his son back to his family near Haran. The servant asks for God's help. Rebekah appears and offers to water his camels. The servant asks that Rebecca return to Abraham's family to marry Isaac with him. Her father and brothers see his great wealth and they understand what a great man Abraham has become and she agrees to go. The brother here is Laban, her son Jacob's future father-in-law. Now a little application here regarding Rebecca, From a shepherdess with nothing special in her life, she leaves her home to become the wife of a very wealthy man. Who would love her greatly and she will become the mother of a great nation it all starts with her kindness to a stranger application for all of us here always do your best even in the little things because you never know who might be watching or what it might lead to at the last judgment in matthew 25 remember jesus commended those who did little things even for something as simple as I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. Little things are seldom little or simple to the one receiving them, and Jesus promises an eternal reward for those who do them, and says it's like doing them for him. Now let's focus on Isaac. We know the least about him of all the patriarchs. He was married when he was 40, but for 20 years he didn't have any children. Now to their credit, Isaac and Rebekah did not attempt the solution of Hagar, of having a handmaiden to have a child. Finally, Rebekah becomes pregnant, and it says the babies jostled each other in her womb. And when she asked why, God said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When God says something, he does not change his mind and we need to remember it. Though they were twins, they were very, very different children. Esau was hairy. He loved the outdoors. He loved hunting. He was his father's favorite. Jacob, obviously, was his mother's favorite. He liked to stay around the tent and cook and all of that. Um, Esau comes home hungry one day, and he's he, his brother's making stew, and he says, oh, I want some of that. And um, Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright. And Esau does. He sells his birthright for some stew. The Bible says that in doing that, Esau despised his birthright. It's used as an example of a very foolish thing to do because, and here's our application, some things cannot be undone. In Hebrews 12:15 through 17, it tells us, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many shall become defiled. no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears forgiveness is always possible but decisions and actions have consequences Later, when the children of Israel refuse at first to go into the promised land, and then they go, oh, we'll do it, do over, do over, we, we'll we'll behave, we'll believe you, God. They were forgiven, but they still had to wander in the desert for 40 years. God can still use the biggest mistakes of our lives, but we might suffer greatly in spite of his mercy. The application is always the same. Warn those you love. Warn yourself. There's always time to stop to think to pray before you do something impulsive and wrong both in big and little areas of life and as an encouragement we do have a much better example how to fight temptation when we're hungry literally hungry remember it tells us in Matthew 4:1 through 4 when Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after 40 days after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus wasn't just hungry. As one commentator said, he was starving. And when starving, you can feel your body consuming itself. C.S. Lewis reminds us that the limits of temptation are only felt by those who resist to the uppermost. And most of us give in far too soon. He's commenting on the idea that a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus never sinned, so he didn't really know what temptation was like. And Lewis says, no, he knows it far, far more than we do because we all give in too soon. Application. Don't focus on your hunger, whatever it might be, but on God's Word applied to your situation. Memorize it, think of situations ahead of time, and pray for how you will react. Now, let's look at Isaac and God's covenant to him. God's personal promise to Isaac didn't come until a time of testing. When there was famine in the land, and as was typical, he was apparently heading down to Egypt. But God appeared to him and said, Don't go to Egypt. Stay where I tell you. Stay here in the land, and I'll be with you and bless you. I'm giving you and your children all these lands, fulfilling the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I'll make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky and give them all these lands. All the nations of the earth will get a blessing for themselves through your descendants. And why? Because Abraham obeyed my summons and kept my charge, my commands, my guidelines, my teaching. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. But then he sinned by telling the king and Gerar that Rebekah was his sister, and once again God rescued her. Isaac lives a relatively uneventful life. He digs a well, he gets chased from, and he does it again. This happens several times until he makes peace with the people. Apparently he was a very quiet and thoughtful man. Esau marries two pagan women, and it does not go well. It says they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. When it comes time to bless his sons, time to bless Esau, Isaac asks Esau to bring the meat so that he can give his blessing to his firstborn son. But God had told him that he was not the chosen one. He told them that Jacob was to be the preeminent son, and Jacob, with his mother's help, steals the blessing. In addition to having taken the birthright that Esau threw away years earlier. Now before we get into the specifics of the results of this, you need to understand the nature of blessings and curses in the Bible. Most of the time when the word blessing is used in the Bible, it has the idea of happy things, good things, what we normally call blessings coming. But it also has the idea of a prophecy, of something that will come about in the future, particularly in the passage at the end of Genesis chapter 49, There's a section entitled, Isaac Blesses His Sons, where it goes on to say some things that we would not really consider blessings, as some of them seem rather harsh and some quite ordinary, just talking about what's going to happen to them. All of them describe his sons, what they are, and what future they will have. These, quote-unquote, blessings are more of what some call insightful prayers. They're prophecies of what will happen, similar to Noah's, quote-unquote, blessing in Genesis 9. More of a prophecy of what would and did happen to the descendants of his sons. The blessing of Jacob and Esau falls into this category and was foreordained by God at their birth when God said, The elder will serve the younger. Isaac's blessing to Jacob and Esau was like this, and when I read these to you, I think this will make a little bit more sense. To Jacob he said, May nations serve you, and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. And then to Esau he said, Your dwelling will be away from earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Both of these prayers, blessings, prophecies, whatever you wish to call them, came true. A little more about the history of Edom or Esau. After receiving the secondary blessing, Esau threatens to kill his brother. They reconcile after many years, but there's always bad relations between Israel and Esau's descendants, which have become the nation of Edom. Edom will later refuse Israel passage after the Exodus, be defeated by Saul and David, be cruel to Israel when it was conquered, and finally, in Obadiah, they're rebuked and judgment is passed on them where it says, You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. One application for us from this is never gloat over God's judgment of others. He takes care of his children. Now, a little bit of interesting trivia, um, in later history, Edom's traditional lands are the same area as Petra. And many of you are familiar with this if you saw the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Those uh, beautiful temples and things that were shown there, the Red Rock, that was those were um, Edom's traditional lands. The Maccabees controlled the area after Alexander's time. The area is also called Edomia, and it was also the home of Herod the Great. His father was actually an Edomite. The rooms we see today are from the 2nd to the 1st century, later than most biblical stories, but the land, the red rocks, it's, you know, again, the prophecy of away from, uh, you know, really lush pastures and all that, it's all the same. It was never a great nation. It never excelled over Israel. Now back to Jacob. He flees his uncle Laban in Haran, stops on the way and has the most unusual dream of angels ascending and descending to heaven. That's the if you are familiar with the spiritual Jacob's ladder, we are climbing Jacob's ladder, etc. That um, that's where the the uh, idea for the song comes from. God appears and gives him the covenant in Genesis thirteen through fifteen. He promises him the land and that all people would be blessed through him and that God would watch over him and bring him back to the land. He goes to Laban, falls in love with his daughter Rachel, works for her seven years and is given Leah then Rachel, but that isn't all. The rivalry between the sisters results in the same old story. Leah has four sons. Rachel is initially barren. Rachel gives Jacob her maidservant Bilhah to have children by her. Leah gives Jacob Zilpha. To have children with. Finally, Rachel has Joseph and later Benjamin. This totals 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you go to the website www.bible805.com, you can see a chart of the, um, all of the, the mothers, their children, and then also of where they settled in the land. Now, it gets a little complicated be, later because Joseph's two sons were adopted by Jacob and are listed as half-tribes. Um, also, in some listings, Levi isn't listed because it was scattered throughout the land. It wasn't a happy family, but the sons, except for Joseph, they do seem to get along. They're very wealthy, and he returns to Canaan. But before he arrives, he has another really extraordinary encounter where he wrestles with God and is given a new name, Israel, Prince of God. Or the one who wrestles with God, strives and succeeds, or who turns the face of God. Regardless of the exact meaning, it's quite a growth in him from the schemer he was early in life. And as one commentator said, in the end, Jacob does what we all must do. He confronts his failures, his weaknesses, his sins, all the things that are hurting him, and faces God. Jacob wrestled with God all night. It was an exhausting struggle that left him crippled. It was only after he came to grips with God and ceased his struggling, realizing that he could not go on without him, that he received God's blessing. People can and do change, and can change incredibly at any age. God wants you to become conformed to the image of Christ. You're an eternal soul, and you're never too old or too young to make progress. After settling back in Canaan, Joseph becomes a favored son of Jacob. Joseph had a special calling from God, but instead of reacting at that time with humility, he brags about it and his brothers hate him for it. They sell him as a slave to the Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. When he was 16 or 17, he was sold as a slave into Egypt and first at Potiphar's house. He resists temptation and he's unjustly put into prison. There he grows into a man of deep faith. He obviously becomes a good administrator, organizer. He's put in charge of the whole prison. And he gives glory to God in his reactions to the baker and cupbearer who he tells them what their dreams mean. He asks that when they're, well, the one of them is going to be released, one of them will be hanged, but he asks that, that the one who will be released, the cupbearer, that he remember him, and he gets out of prison and promptly forgets all about it. He must wait two more years before his release. When he was 30 though, he's made a ruler in Egypt. He was 39 when his brothers first come to Egypt, the second year of the famine, or nine years after being made ruler. He was probably 41 or so when his brothers come a second time and Jacob comes to Egypt. He puts the brothers through various tests for them to deal with and confess their sins. Joseph's final words on his family history, though, are quite wonderful where he says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives so then don't be afraid i will provide for you and your children he reassured them and spoke kindly to them twisted evil actions brought this all about but god made good of it they will stay in egypt for 400 years but you may be wondering why is it okay for israel to go to egypt they weren't supposed to go there before but remember god told abraham Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God gave Jacob permission to go to Egypt, where 70 people became about 3 million. While they were there, they were isolated. They did not intermarry or serve the Egyptian gods. Application number one here. Always listen for current directions. And application number two. Being part of God's will sometimes means isolation. With Noah, it says that God shut him in. Joseph was put in prison, was um, a slave for quite some time. Moses was in Midian for 40 years. Isolation is often a time of preparation and growth. And so the ship of God's plan has completed one more part of the journey. From Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, from these individuals, we now have a nation. Sometimes they did great things, sometimes very bad things, tested, blessed, suffered, and rejoiced, sometimes because of their actions, sometimes because God gave them blessings or trials. As Hebrews 11.13 puts it, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. No one of them could see the whole plan, but they trusted God, And his will was accomplished. Now what do we learn from their lives on the balance of God's sovereignty and our responsibility? The patriarchal families are men and women we honor. But their lives were far from smooth sailing, and usually their problems were caused by what they did. Abraham brought untold misery into his family and down to the wars of today by not waiting on God and having a child by Hagar. Isaac caused strife between his sons by not obeying God's decision on who should be first from the time the boys were born and attempting to make a son first who God had rejected. Joseph acted arrogantly. His brothers sinned terribly by selling him as a slave. Yet no matter how they messed up on the decks, God is the captain of the ship, and it traveled forward to his destination. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made it safely to Egypt, where they would grow into a great nation, because God never let go of the hell. Some additional applications of the balance of sovereignty and free will. Knowing God has us tightly in his grip, and all of life is under his control, knowing the ship of our life will make it safely home, should give us great peace and encouragement. What it should not give us is complacency. The Bible's very clear that we're responsible for how we act, what we do with the gifts and opportunities God gives us, and that there are consequences, seen and unseen, temporal and eternal. Jacob is a great example of one who began as a schemer, deceiver, and who through times believing God, working very hard, responding to his commands, and ultimately wrestling with God, finally becomes Israel, the one who struggled with God, who is now called a prince of God. Always we have chances to begin again to do better. As we look at their lives, where are you on your journey? Maybe you're having a great time and the trip is going wonderfully. Perhaps you're a little seasick. Perhaps you're tired of the journey. Maybe you're working hard below the decks and it seems like others do nothing but lounge in the sun. Maybe your voyage is pleasant. Perhaps it's sad. But wherever you are, if you are alive, your journey isn't over as this last story reminds us. Here's one final story to remember in life's journeys. An old missionary had spent his life laboring in obscurity in the jungles of distant Africa. He would buried the love of his life there in the foreign land and both of his children. He was now returning back to his beloved America, to a land of distant memory. All his family and the friends of his childhood had long preceded him in death. His health was broken, as the old man of God boarded a steamer coming home for a final time. As fate would decree on the same ocean liner, was a world-famous celebrity with his entourage. As a massive ship entered New York Harbor and sailed past the Statue of Liberty, the sound of bands playing could be heard and the noise of thousands of people at the dock to welcome home this famous star of screen and stage. As the ship docked, ticker tape filled the air, music and shouts were loud and boisterous. Soon the star had left the ship and the parade followed him down the street. As the old missionary gathered his personal belongings and walked down the gangplank, not one person was there to meet him. As a tear trickled down his face, the old man of God looked to heaven and in a voice of dejection said, Lord, after all these years of faithful service, could you not have sent just one person to welcome me home? From the battlements of heaven, a voice spoke very softly in reply, You see, my son, that is the point. You are not home yet. This story is a reminder to all of us. Our ship is not at its home port. We are not home yet. Our sovereign God will get us to our destination, but we ought not to expect the peace and ease of heaven when there is work yet to be done on earth. As Amy Carmichael said, we have all of eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few short hours before the sunset to win them. Until then, be a pleasant shipmate, work hard to get along with your fellow passengers, do your assigned tasks, and most of all, pay close attention to the words of your captain, the Lord Jesus, and be assured of a glorious welcome when you do arrive home and join that great family of God that began with Abraham and now includes you. That's all for now. Please check out the notes, the links to other material, everything that's available for you at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.